tonight uh, doing a prophecy update. Going to be taking uh, this update from two passages of Scripture, the main portion of the teaching coming from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and Luke 22, verses 35 through 38. Prophecy update. Dave was, uh, Dave Dew was talking to me about the need of hearing prophetic teaching out of our church and possibility of doing these on Sunday. And there is a possibility that I could do them on a Sunday, but I was just thinking about that. And, you know, if you like what I put together tonight and you watch it on Facebook, see it on our church's webpage, you can share it with others, a way to get the word out in that fashion as well. And, uh, these are timely updates, so somewhat uh, putting them together by the news and the headlines of today in some of these areas, and so very timely, and we'll see what the Lord does with it. So this whole teaching came out of a misunderstood commercial from 1970s. It was actually a Boy Scout commercial, and it opening lines that had in there i looked up the commercial today and then uh, went to look up the lyrics of the commercial and found out that since the 1970s i have heard the opening line of this commercial wrong but i wasn't the only one because it made the misheard words uh in this commercial the commercial itself be prepared and this is what was in my head be prepared are you ready to get more be prepared, are you ready to take the lead? Now the actual words are, be prepared, are you ready, let me find it, are you ready to get involved? Be prepared, are you ready to take the lead? So I wasn't the only one who misheard the opening line of this commercial, be prepared, are you ready to get more? I, I was convinced that it was like an Go Army commercial back in the 70s that I was looking for, and I discovered that it was actually a Boy Scout commercial, but it was the misheard lyrics that got me thinking about preparations in these last days. And there was many other things that's playing into this thought of preparedness, such as our government's overreach of emergency powers that have led to businesses closing, mass retirements, product shortages, hyperinflation, just to name a few things. And we've also seen the locking down of our churches, schools, and businesses that have also led to higher levels of alcoholism and drug addiction and overdoses and suicides. Now, some churches and businesses that closed during the 15 days to slow the spread, that's kind of morphed into several months or even into a year or more, have never reopened. In fact, here in the state of Illinois, our government is still clinging on to his emergency powers, as is our federal government as well. Those businesses and churches who have reopened, some of them have lost clientele, parishioners, so much so that it's hard for many of them to stay open, to keep their doors open. And yet it's the decline in the national church attendance that is most concerning to me. There was a recent poll that was done by Pew Research Center. 
it showed that the u s. christian population has been declining steadily in the past decade to date sixty three percent of americans describe themselves americans describe themselves as christians now we can let that sink in we know it's not actually true but sixty three percent believe that they are truly christian but that's down from seventy five percent just a decade ago and in times of crisis such as the COVID pandemic one might expect that more people would have turned to religion given that death fear and isolation um, would cause people to just want to get closer to god and initially it did but as the pandemic lengthened instead of strengthening in their faith many people were weakened in their faith according to the data in april may of 2020 by barna group one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely during COVID-19. Last June, so this would be 2021, the AP, AP broke a story about many houses of worship in the U.S. that were shuttered forever due to the pandemic. And what's worse, church membership in the U.S. dropped below 50% for the first time in 2020. According to Gallup data dating back to 1940, one of the authors from Christianity Today, one of the writers from Christianity Today has pointed out that empty pews are an American public health crisis. And I believe that's true. And clearly, we are in a national crisis. We are in a nation in crisis. And sadly, these crises have caused people not to seek the refuge of christ years ago that would have been a foregone conclusion that when times of trouble come people turn to the lord and yet now we find that many are turning to human government government that god gave humanity for the betterment of society but when human government overreaches their authority people stop looking to God for their help and their hope. There is a danger of a societal collapse. And I believe that we are kind of in those areas. It's kind of living in the days of the last days. It fits so perfectly in the last day, days that have been prophesied in Scripture. How much time we have, only God knows. But we are to live in a state of readiness, preparedness, we are to do business until Jesus comes. And so I titled this Last Day's Prep Preparations. I titled it that. I can't say the word. Last Day's Preparation. <laughs> there I go again. Last Day's prep Preparations. I can say it if I try, I guess. So I want to look at in verses 1 through 12 of Luke chapter 10. First, the commission of the 70s. And then a final commission to the 12 in Luke 22, 35 through 38. And then I just want to give uh, some final thoughts as in my third point of living in a state of readiness. And so we're going to be looking at scripture like I love to do in a prophecy update and also related to some of the things that we see going on in our world today. So we begin Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. We first discover that the laborers are few. 
After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And although none of the other gospels talk about Jesus sending out the 70, back in chapter 9, Luke wrote about Jesus sending out the 12. And so this is a separate uh, incident where the Lord had already sent out the 12, sent them out two by two. But here we find that he sends out 70 as well, in addition to the 12. And although they are two separate events, they have very similar preparations and outcomes. So Jesus appointed 70 others also in addition to the 12. In Luke 9, 51 and 52, we have read, Now when it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up. So this is uh, that state of preparedness. Jesus is getting his mind and heart ready for the upcoming crucifixion. It seems kind of early in the book of Luke, but Luke tells us when the time had come for him to be received up, that's talking about his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, that he steadfastly set his face to go towards Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face. And so he sent out messengers, whether speaking about the 12 or the 70, they went out two by two to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to preach the coming kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus made his way to the cross, he sent out these advanced teams to prepare his way. Jesus said in verse 2, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. To this day, that statement continues to be true. The harvest is great, the laborers are few. Are we doing what Jesus has called us to do in this verse? First of all, are we praying for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field? Are we praying for the hearts of many to come to Jesus that they might find forgiveness of sin and know the salvation that can only come through saving the saving faith of Jesus Christ? Are we praying that unbelievers might hear the Spirit say, as the prophet Nathan said to David, after David confessed his sin before God, Nathan responded to him in 2 Samuel 12, 13, the Lord also has put away your sin. If we would pray in this way, I believe that we would discover that God would do a work in our own lives, that we might be like the 12 or the 70, or perhaps we would be like Isaiah who responded to the call of the Lord when the Lord put a call upon his heart. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 eight said, Here am I, send me. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers. When you pray that way, you might, be, might discover that the Lord is wanting to send you. He goes on in verses 3 and 4 to talk about the laborer being worthy, worthy of his hire. So he said in verses 3 and 4, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. That too is true to this day. 
carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. So Jesus never said that the road of faith would be an easy road. He said, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. Jesus did not tell the 70s to take the 70 that he sent out to take extra provisions for their journey. He told them actually carry neither money bag, knapsack, or sandals. He didn't even want them to greet anyone on the road, to get distracted. They were to be mission-minded, focusing their full attention on the task at hand, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the villages, the towns, the cities, where he he had sent them, knowing that Jesus would be soon following behind them. And I fear that in this life, we often might get distracted from the task at hand whether doing something at school or work or at home, but especially when it comes to doing the work of the church. Paul wrote to Timothy in Paul's last letter, last epistle to the church, but the last letter to Timothy as well. 2 Timothy 2.4, he said, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And sometimes we do not attempt to do the work of God thinking that we don't have the adequate provisions. And yet Jesus commanded the 70 carry neither a money bag, knapsack, or sandals. So there's a fine balance of walking in faith, trusting in the Lord's provision, having wisdom in this world. I can tell you after uh, being a pastor here at this fellowship for 23 plus years now that, you know, being concerned about the provision for this place to carry on to do the work of the ministry, uh, it is challenging at all times. And yet David said in Psalm 37, 3, that we are to trust in the Lord and to do good, dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness. So we're to have this abiding trust in the Lord, not in humanity, We're to go forth to do the work that he has called us to do. We're not to get distracted in the work, and I fear that we often do. And we are to carry forth the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message is true to this day. When the 70 were sent forth, it was speaking about the work that Jesus was going to do through the work of the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, his first coming. But when we teach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand today, it speaks about Jesus' return to the earth and his second coming. He also gave the 70, the laborers, authority in verses 5 through 12. We begin in verses 5 through 8, the authority to offer or withhold God's peace. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Isn't that interesting? So a son of peace, someone who believes and trusts in God versus someone who does not believe and trust in God. The 70 witnesses, they were, their mission was the same, whether they believed or not. Let your peace be with the house. Peace to this house. 
Now, it really depended on the attitude of the person, whether they would receive the blessing of peace or reject the blessing of peace. But the witnesses were to offer peace, whether they were sons of peace or not. If they rejected it, that peace would return to them. And verse 7 And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you. So the 70 were not only to offer peace, that peace being reciprocated in the house itself, in the city, if they received them, they were to receive that hospitality of the city, the hospitality of the household where they stayed. They were not to go shopping around for a better deal. Whatever house received you, stay. And they provide the food, the drink, the lodging, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And I fear sometimes in the Christian circles today, in churches and pastors, we find that often pastors... They're shopping around for a better deal. And I was raised in a denominational church, and I had seen this where pastors did not necessarily stay too long at the churches who had called them. And from my opinion, and being on uh, boards that were uh, looking at hiring a new pastor for a church that uh, pastor had left the church. It seemed like rarely did I say see a, a pastor leave a church to go to a smaller church. He always used the smaller churches as a stepping stone to get to a larger church. It's not that it never happened the other way, but it seemed that they were not content. They would look for lodging somewhere else. They would look for provision somewhere else rather than to remain with those who first opened their home, their lives to them. Maybe it's a pastor coming out of seminary. And, and that blessed fellowship sat through two years of horrible sermons while he was learning how to preach and to teach the Word of God effectively. And as soon as he got some skill under his belt, He's ready to move on and, and to go to another church. Now, bless, uh, blessing to that church that endured such a thing, but we find that quite often we are not content. One of the reasons I became a Calvary Chapel pastor because I was raised in a denomination that at the time, uh, average pastor would stay at his church for two and a half years And then there was a time where that went down to 18 months. I don't know where it is now. Um, But one of the things that attracted me to the Calvary Chapel movement, as I was learning about this movement, I discovered that many of the men who founded the churches where they preached, they remained. They didn't church hop. They didn't move around. They just sat it out. And sometimes they felt like going. And when they would call our founding pastor, Pastor Chuck, and say, Chuck, I want to come home. Chuck would say, give it six more months. Hang in there. Go six more months. And for some churches, that's all they needed was a little more time for the blessing to be poured out. 
In 3 John 5 through 8, it says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. So for the brethren, the believers, and for strangers, the unbelievers, you do faithfully. Whatever you do, do it faithfully. Who have borne witness of your love before the church, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that they may become fellow workers for the truth. So John in third John is speaking to the church, to the Jewish church, it seems, for he says, for brethren and for strangers, but and then also mentions the Gentiles. They didn't take anything from the Gentiles that they were to provide for the laborers, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. In verse 9, the Lord continues that they were to heal the sick and to preach the gospel. Verse 9 is pretty simple. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke 9, we find, so that's verse 9 of chapter 10. Heal the sick, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke 9, when he sent out the 12, he gave a similar command. He said in verses 1 and 2, give them power and authority over demons to cure their diseases. And he sent them out to preach to the God, preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. So as I said, whether talking about the 70, talking about the 12, very similar in the approach, um, the instructions that the Lord gave to the Lord, even though Luke does not use the same exact words with the 70, the context reveals that they not only healed the sick, they cast out demons and they preached the kingdom of God. Today, the Lord has commissioned us to go forth, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach the good news of salvation, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And we're very familiar with the great commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I want to read just a portion of Mark's commission. Same commission, just Mark tells it a little differently. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, and verse 20. He said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanied signs. Amen. And so being able to heal the sick, to cast out demons, that's the Lord working with them, the Holy Spirit working with the church to give testimony of the word, confirming the word through the signs that are given. So they preach the word. People are healed physically. That's a confirmation of the word that was just preached. And people come to life-saving faith in Jesus Christ. They also had the authority to bring judgment upon a city, verses 10 through 12. But whatever city you enter... They do not receive you. Go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. So the message is the same. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is near. Now they reject, 
but they still tell them the kingdom of God is near. You've rejected the message, but that doesn't change the message. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. So they were very accustomed to the Jewish mind to shake the dust off of one's feet. It was a practice that uh, Orthodox Jews practice, maybe to this day, some still do. But in Jesus's day, this was still true. If they went to a public market place, if they went to a foreign country, as they entered back, if there's a marketplace, as they came back into their home, they would shake the dust off their feet. If they were in another country, as they entered into the land of Israel, they would shake the dust. They didn't want to bring the dust of foreigners into their country, into their cities, into their homes. Yet the 70s rejection of a city came because of the city's rejection of them and their message of peace. Remember, they were to preach the message of peace. God, peace be upon you. Whether they believed or did not believe, they were to give forth that message of peace. And if they were rejected, then they were to shake the dust. It was to be a, a physical showing of their rejection, not only shake the dust of their dust off their sandals, but say to them that this is against you. And God said, when the day of judgment comes, for that city who rejects the gospel of peace, the kingdom of God, ultimately rejecting Jesus Christ, Sodom will do better in the day of judgment. Just think about those words. Sodom and Gomorrah have already been judged once by the Lord. But there is a future judgment awaiting them at the great white throne judgment of God. On this earth they were judged, but that wasn't the end of it. A future judgment still awaits. In John 15, 18 and 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world and the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What a, a different message that Jesus preached to his followers compared to the many of the popular messages that the church preaches. Over the last few weeks, I've been listening to updates about religion and faith in the United States and hearing some comments uh, last week. One of the guys that I was listening to said in many of our churches, it could be World War III right outside their church doors. And the pastor will get up and say, well, today we're going to pick up in teaching. It, it doesn't even change what the church is doing. And then another person that I was listening to last week said that churches are back at the, uh, you know, eight steps of how to better your life sermon series. They're back to the have your best life now sermon series instead of teaching the word of God and preparing God's people for trying times that I believe are upon us. So the rejection of the 70 then is connected to the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 
they would ultimately be judged for the rejection of Christ. So in many ways, the disciples, they were going out freely without provision. It describes, when I looked at this, and I'm going to compare it when we get to our next point, I'm going to prepare it for the words that Jesus told the 12 right before going to the cross. He told them something different. He referred back to Luke chapter 9, but in Luke 22, he changes it a little bit. He reminds them of what he said in Luke 9, and then he says something different in Luke 22 to the disciples. So I look at the disciples going out, and Jesus sending them out, verses 1 and 2, two by two, before his face into every city and every place. He sent himself that he was about to go. He said, the harvest is truly great. The labors are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Go your way, verse 3. Behold, I send you out as lambs to the wolf. Nothing's changed. Verse 4, carry neither money bag, sack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the way. And give peace to your house. I kind of view the last couple of hundred years or more of church growth, especially here in what we call the United States today, although uh, we go back long enough and it was colonies and we were connected to England and all that, but the, the gospel was being proclaimed. And we looked at this last month. I'm going to repeat a few of these points but not as in great detail. I just want to remind you of the past great awakenings here in the U.S., of four of them. From 1730 to 1740, it was known as the great, first, great, first Great Awakening. It was the first major event that all the colonies shared in, helping to break down the walls that actually divided them and separated them. And the evangelists of that day, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, among many others that preached during that time. In the Second Great Awakening, in the 1800s to 1840, about 40 years that is given over to the Second Great Awakening, such a great number of people came to faith at that time that there was a rapid church growth in the denominations. Denominations were being formed at this time. And the leaders of this movement were Charles Finney, Lehman Beecher, Barton Stone, Peter Cartwright, and James Finley. The third Great Awakening, 1857 to 1859, at this time, 10,000 people in New York City alone were gathering for prayer daily and many of the other major cities. I went through that list last month. They were also meeting some 1,500 to 2,000 in Chicago, 2,000 people a day gathering for prayer in many of the cities, major cities about the U.S. In the Fourth Great Awakening, Many have viewed from the 1960s to the 1970s a revival that swept through our land and really in the hearts of the hippies, the youth of our nations, of our nation and Calvary Chapel movement being birthed at this same time. The hippies who had sought for peace and love, they found these things in the person of Jesus Christ. Also, we find at the same time, missionary works began to blossom in the U.S. way back in 1792. This is actually 
when an English shoemaker, William Carey, in a sermon called, he called his generation to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. So this began the Protestant era of faith. And an English missionary, a shoemaker, William Carey, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And zealously, people attempted great things for God and missionary societies were formed. And that came over into the U.S. by 1806 in Massachusetts. Lily knows I have a hard time with that one. They were members of uh, a secret society. I don't know if secret societies are that great, but it was at Williams College. They were huddled, and I read this in a number of different events. They were huddled under haystacks to pray during a storm. They emerged from this with a slogan about the missions as William Carey's. Their slogan was, we can do it if we will. If we will, if we desire, we can do it. And a missions board eventually was formed out of this. Foreign missions were birthed out of this. And the hymns of that era, here's a couple of different lines from two different hymns of that era. From Greenland's icy mountains, from India's coral strand, where Africa's sunny foundations roll down their golden sand. From many an ancient river, from many a palmy plain, they call us to deliver their land from error's chain. Or, loud and strong the master calleth, rich reward he offers thee. Who will answer gladly saying, here I am, send me, send me. They sang hymns about going into the missions field. Think about that for a moment. Missions have had a strong sense in our society for many years. Even the Calvary Chapel movement on the Calvary Chapel Association website, they have this paragraph, a defining characteristic of Calvary Chapel is a strong support for missions, domestic and international. As you might expect, there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of missions works going on throughout the world through hundreds of Calvary Chapel churches. While churches and missionary organizations continue to send forth labors into the world, the flow of missionaries from the United States, it has slowed. During the 19th and 20th centuries, the growth of churches and missionary works in and from the U.S., I believe we're much like Jesus sending out the 12 or sending out the 70, saying, don't worry about the extra provisions. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. Just go preach my message of peace. Preach the gospel to the people. If they receive it, let your peace remain upon them. If they reject it, then receive your peace back. Though God greatly blessed this season of past revivals and missionary works, in our land, it seems that Christianity in the U.S., in the world, that we are entering into a new era. I believe that we are seeing a change. Church attendance is seeking, or shrinking back. I've already mentioned that. We'll look at that again in a moment. 
But also, uh, there was a point to where the United States were, we were the greatest senders of missionaries throughout the world. And there was a point where people from other parts of the world have now begun to send missionaries to us. It needs to be preached here again. So we go over to Luke 22, verses 35 through 38. So this is just a few verses, but there is a change. Jesus begins by contrasting what he had taught them when he sent them out as the 12, as the 70. So he begins in verse 35 of Luke 22. He said to the 12, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. At that time, Jesus told them not to take any extra provisions as they were to trust in God for their provision. Yet here Jesus tells them in verse 36, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. He who has a sword, let him sell his garment. Has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. <laughs> I was watching an old movie um, over the last couple of days, and I just, you know, sit down to eat lunch or something. I'll flip on an old movie, and I had recorded it, and I've seen it before. Lily was, it was fascinating in many ways to me. It was about a town parson and after the civil war and he was the first person to bring the gospel to his town and the first thing he did when he walked into town he went to the saloon he went to the end of the bar he took his two guns out his colts he sat them down on the bar got everybody's attention and then he opened up his bible and he began to preach to the people there in the town if you have a sword take it with you so i imagine you know, if I came up here and pulled out a gun and sat it down, it's like, all right, let's open the scripture. That would be a little different. But it was also fascinating to me because they had typhoid going through the town and the town doctor blamed the pastor for spreading the typhoid, causing many of the children and people to be sick and to die, so much so that the pastor closed his church and he did not come out of his house. Does any of this sound familiar? And eventually the medical man, the doctor, a young doctor, realized he needed the preacher and the preacher coming to that understanding, he needed the doctor. And there was this welding together of the two, which I would love to see happen in our society. But there are times, I reckon, where if you have no sword, and I was thinking about this, far-reaching ministries, one of the ministries that we have supported here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, um, they are going into Afghanistan, and they're helping. They've brought some 4,500 people out of there. Uh, it's in the Calvary Magazine, the last couple of issues. You can read about that, but they are going in with weapons. Their life is on the line as they go in to rescue. And the sad thing about it is that the United States is not opening doors for them to bring the people here. And they're finding other countries like Brazil, one of the countries that 
is willing to take in the refugees from there that they're bringing out. Um, maybe that number is too high. It's 4,500 a person is the cost that it costs them to get one person out of that war-torn region. So notice that Jesus now says, he who has, let him carry his wallet, his backpack, even buy a weapon if necessary. This tells us that something changed. And I believe that we are coming into that something changed in how the church is to do ministry in our society today. Um, A lot has changed. It's really talking about doing ministry, but being in that place of preparedness. You have the wallet, you have the backpack, you have even a weapon. And they said, we have two swords that they would go on to say, and Jesus said, that is enough. And we never read about any of the apostles actually using the sword, except Peter, there when Jesus was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, he chopped, out Mal- chopped off Malchus's ear, of whom Jesus immediately healed, told Peter to put away his sword, even warned Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But there was a change, equipping themselves with wallet, backpack, and even weapon if necessary. Jesus taught his disciples, I believe in this, to be in a state of readiness. This is because at this time, Jesus was coming to the end of his earthly ministry. And they're talking about his first coming, his death, burial, and resurrection. It was all going to change for the disciples. In verse 37, I say to you, that which is written of me must still be accomplished. For he who is numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So he quotes Isaiah 53, 12, because he has been poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, who is holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners, he suffered and died as a criminal among two thieves. He did this for you and for me. So the sword thing, we somewhat, we just need to be prepared. I tell you, when they had the riots in Kenosha, was that last year, only last year? Or was it two years ago? These last couple of years have been something. For the first time, when they had the riots and the Rittenhouse situation took place, and Rittenhouse being from Antioch, Antioch being five minutes, uh, not even from where we live, from our house, for the first time in my life, weapons came into my bedroom. Maybe I should have always had them there, but I had never done that before. I was in a state of readiness. I didn't know what was going to happen. A pastor where riots were breaking out in Ohio, he he told me and Lily uh, a couple of years ago, we were eating lunch together at a pastor's meeting. And uh, he said, every window in my house, I had a weapon set up and ready to go because riots were going on in his town and he wasn't that far from the downtown. Thankfully, Those things were not needed. But being prepared, 
We're not to war like the world. And here's where we need to find the balance. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, Paul tells us, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. Our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And so I believe the time of preparedness and provision has once again arrived. Perhaps we could, for the most of my life and many years before, we could describe the church and the missionary work of the church more like Luke chapter 10, Jesus sending out the 12, Jesus sending out the 70, saying, don't worry about extra provision. Just go and spread the gospel of peace throughout all the world. But now I think we've come to more of a time like Luke 23, a time of preparedness and provision has once again arrived. Over the last several dec decades, our country has been transitioning from a society that had a strong Judeo-Christian mindset to a post-Christian society. There's one school um, board, I believe it was in California, that at the board meeting they decided they were no longer to say the Pledge of Allegiance because the Pledge of Allegiance uh, before the board meeting because of its reference to God and the board president he nearly laughed as he said this, but he said that comes from a Judeo-Christian mindset. We don't have that here. And he was almost laughing. And almost to the point, is like, boy, I'd like to smack you. Because he was very smart-alecky as he said it there at the board. Now, Gallup found 81% of Americans expressing belief when asked this simple question, do you believe in God? 81%, but this was down from 87% in 2017, and a record low for the question that was asked first in 1944, where 96% believed. Do you believe in God? 1944, 96% of people in the United States in this poll said, yes, we believe. It reached a height in the 1950s and 60s of 98%, almost our whole country believed that there was a God. This is not going into whether uh, there's faith in Jesus Christ, but there was a strong Christian belief in our country at that time. And it's been declining to where now we're down to 81%, depending on how the question is asked, as low as 64%. Sadly, our country is less reliant upon God, more reliant upon our government. This increases upon the government increase of reliability upon the government is leading our society, the world, closer to the last day prophecies and this one world government that's been prophesied in scripture. 
We learn in Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18, and he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, let him understand, calculate the number of the beast, the number of man. It is 666. So uh, a couple of times in these prophecy updates, I've fell back to Klaus Schwab's uh, co-author of COVID-19, The Great Reset, and the points, the eight points that were stressed at the 2020 World Economic Forum. And so I want to go through the eight points, and then I want to come back over them and just look at like one headline for each eight point of the eight points. And then I just want to ask the question, are we getting closer to seeing these things realized or further away? So what are the eight points? A reminder, the first one, we love it. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. They're saying this by 2030. So we only have... Uh, uh, not too many more years to go on that one. The U.S. won't be a world's leading superpower, number two. Number three, you won't die waiting for an organ donor. They'll be made by 3D printers. Number four, you'll eat much less meat. Meat will be an occasional treat, not a staple. For the good of the environment and our health. Number five, billions of people will be displaced by climate change. Number six, polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. There will be a global price on carbon. This will make the fossil fuel fuels history. Number seven, you could be preparing to go to Mars. Scientists will have worked out how to keep you healthy in space. Number eight, Western values will have been tested to the breaking point. Checks and balances that underpin our democracies must not be forgotten. That's a tricky one there. But let's break them down. And remember, are we getting closer or further away to the Great Reset? I believe, well, I'll let you answer that question for yourself. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. A recent Zillow analysis of home buying potential among renters said that an environment where home ownership rates have fallen to a 50-year low. And there's much talk about millennials not buying homes. One reason for the increasing popularity of renting has more to do with the changes in our economy. Jobs are more transient. People are moving to where the jobs are. And because they are not staying 20 or 30 years at a job, renting has become preferred housing solutions um, out of convenience and logic, they say. Also, a greater number of the homes that are going on the market today, this is not in my notes, they're being bought up by corporations that they can rent or lease them back to you. I even learned uh, last week of you'll own nothing and you'll be happy that one of the fancier, whether it's a BMW or a car like that, fancier cars like that, they will have, um, the example was like option of seat warmers. The equipment's in your car, the sweet seat warming capability is there, but if you actually want your seat warmed in the wintertime, you have to pay a service to turn that thing on. Think about the chips. I, I didn't really get this too much, but 
you know, the chips, the new cars, they're all sitting there waiting for chips. An average new car has about 2,500 chips in it. They're not waiting like for one main chip to plug into the car to make it work, but every single component, and they're wanting to get it to the place to where they can control what you use in your vehicle, but it won't be yours because you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. One author that I read dreamed about the perfect city where there was no carbon emission anymore. No one owned any, anything. In fact, um, the author's living room, when she was not there, she said maybe being used for a board meeting since the space is not being used. They're imagining a society that is much different than what we see today. Number two, the U.S. won't be a world's leading superpower. Well, while inflation, high gas prices, food prices, a falling stock mar market, the politics, we're in a recession. Two Gallup polls reveal that an erosion of foundational principles that are key to a stable and enduring society are happening in our nation. Gallup 50% of those surveyed believe that the state of moral values in America is poor. 37% say that they are only fair. And this trend is headed in the right direction, is not heading in the right direction, as 78% think that they are getting worse. I, I agree with the 78. Things once considered wrong and immoral are now paraded as the opposite and woe to the corporations, institution, and individuals that claim otherwise. So we have this woke culture in our nation that is degrading the moral values of our society. And if you stand against it, you will get canceled. But the thing is, if you're not worried about being canceled, what can they do with you? And I think that's how we fight against it. Just let them bring it on. Number three, you won't die waiting for organ donation. They'll be made by three 3D printers. I was reading about this. Doctors say that this is actually some 10 years away before this comes to a reality, but it is uh, 3D organ bioprinting that they take cells from someone's own body, recreate the organ that is failing, and they believe that they're going to get there, that they said what is driving this is real human need. So interesting. I don't know um, how that's going to play out, but if you need a lung or a heart um, and they have that technology, it might be something that in 10 years from now you might be considering that 3D organ printing. It seems kind of really sci-fi there, but they're working on it. You'll eat much less meat. Meat will become an occasional treat. I don't like this one. But there's pressure on the governments to lower meat eating by at least 30% over the next decade and calls for widespread switch to alternative types of protein. And this strategy is backed up by climate change committees, government bodies that set targets at much higher demanding uh, 20 to 50% reduction in meat consumption and net zero target by 2050. So we talk about two dates. We see it 
happening as you read about these things. There's a 2030 target date and a 2050 target date in many of these initiatives. So no meat consumption by 2050, except for all, probably for the elite and the rich people. They'll continue doing what they do. Like out in California, um, one of the uh, rich actors out there promoting lawsuits that help to promote climate change initiatives while he is flying around in his jet airplane, causing more uh, carbon emissions than any one of us. And I was reading in California that they have just in a few years, uh, by 2024, that no small engines, no lawnmowers, no chainsaws, no weed whackers, no leaf blowers, everything's going to be battery operated. Everything will cost twice as much. And I still wonder how they're going to charge all these batteries. I still haven't quite got that one figured out. Um, but they're trying to get a switch. So here's something interesting that's said about the food. If you don't have the land portion for the animals, leaving less space for wildlife, it will cause wildlife to flourish, uh, suggesting that we'll move away from meat and dairy cultivation. It would free up more than 75% of global farmland, and then the remaining 25% would still be able to feed the world. They have big dreams going on there. But it makes me wonder about all this buying up of farmland in the United States that's happening right now. They're ready to switch. Number five, a billion people will be displaced by climate change. The rapid population growth, the lack of access for food and water and increased exposure to natural disasters. They are saying that a billion people will be displaced and they're theorizing that we'll have a population of nearly 10 billion by 2050, that date again. And we see uh, one of the things I read a few months ago, talking about a half a billion going into Europe, half a billion into the United States and Canada. And it seems that they're trying to begin that migration into the United States. It has been going on in Europe for a number of years now. Polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. And so there'll be a, a carbon, a global price on carbon. And the House, as you know, passed last week a sweeping tax, health, and climate bill. Last Friday, President Biden signed into that uh, climate or this I don't have the name of the bill here. It was the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Not true. It's not going to reduce inflation, but it has a lot to do with climate policies. And we've already seen gas prices begin to rise. And somebody mentioned that this afternoon. I said, well, they did sign that new law in, and they're preparing that the plan is to reduce climate emission, but also uh, charge for those who are making the climate emissions into our air. So roughly by 2030, wanting to reduce or slash our country's emissions by nearly 40% by 2030. Again, uh, that's not that far away. 
Could you go to March, Mars? Well, that was question number seven. And right now, sending humans to Mars is an official policy of NASA, and they are working on it at the Kennedy Space Center. And they have a whole area designed for getting humans to be able to live on Mars. Number eight, Western values will come and be tested to a breaking point in the world Economic Forum is telling us, and one author said, to kiss goodbye what we had once thought sacred and to prepare for a new world order where you have no rights and no recourse, but you must accept when everything you can do, purchase or say is permitted by the government alone, we have, to, we have reached a level of control that is unthinkable. If you own nothing, then the very place you live, sleep, and raise your family will belong to someone else. If it is not yours, what is it to stop the government or its enforcers from entering? So I ask the question, does it feel like we're getting closer or further away from this dreamed global reset? I believe that our government is trying to get us closer and the governments of the world. So I just want to wrap up by talking about living in a state of readiness. Over the past two plus years, we've seen churches deemed as non-essential in the U.S. and Canada. Pastors were fined in America, by the way. Pastor Michael McClure uh, there in California had some $3.8 million worth of fines against himself and his church. He was acquitted of everything. Uh, they went into appeals. And the court sided with Michael on this one. So he owes nothing to the California government that had him under attack. So that's a good thing. But in Canada, pastors were not only fined, they were jailed. There were trucker protests in Canada and in the U.S. where in Canada, truckers and their supporters had assets frozen. Truckers were arrested. There were also farmers protests in India and the Netherlands where the Farm Act legislations passed by their governments had made farming difficult. In fact, in the Netherlands, uh, they're filling their uh, streets with tractors. The government is saying people are uh, coming into our country. We need a place to put them. So we're going to take 15% of your farmland and we're going to make it a place of refuge for the people. So they're just government trying to steal the land of the people besides making farming more difficult. So protests going on right now. In New Zealand, the government wants to cut cattle and sheep to reduce the methane emission. So they call it the burping and farting tax. That's what they call it. I'm just telling you. I normally wouldn't say that from the pulpit. But... Uh, they're going to charge a tax for every single head of livestock that's coming. That's actually happening um, and coming to our country as well. California is getting real big on these things. Sri Lanka forced transition into organic farming in April of 2021. So they said you can't use nitrates any longer to uh, make fertilizer for your farm fields. This was in April of 2021, and it so wrecked their crop yield that they went from being exporters to importers, and right now the president had to flee the country because of the social unrest there. 
That law came down in April of 2021. What year is this? 2022. It didn't take long for unrest to happen in their country. And sadly, I believe many of these bad policy decisions that are happening in other countries are finding their way into the U.S. I believe that it is therefore necessary to the best of our ability. If you have a wallet, Jesus said, take the wallet, the change. If you have a knapsack, take the knapsack to the best of our ability to physically prepare for coming crisis, whether food or shortages, inflations, rise of interest rates, civil unrest, but also the necessity of spiritual preparation as well. And uh, so I think we need to prepare. Uh, I heard of, so the natural, they take natural gas to make the nitrates, to make the fertilizer that we use in our field. A lot of that coming from out of the production of these things coming out of Russia. So with the war between Russia and Ukraine, that is just stalled or non-existent. And the price of these things have become very uh, increased here in the United States. And I had heard recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that we'll be fine this year because the fields have enough in them from past fertilization and weed control that the crop yields will not be much different. But they said next year it could be a challenge. So I think that state of preparedness that the Lord may be giving us time, just prepare for your families to have provision in your homes. We don't know what's coming, but I tell you what, my wife and I were talking about um, cooking and uh, this evening, and Lily had said, I'd never heard her say this before. She goes, I don't know if we ever had canned vegetables in our homes. Everything was made from scratch, a bag of rice, bag of beans, Mexican, imagine that kind of meal. Um, but I said, our moms really took care of us well, didn't they? They, they you know, put up, my mom and the garden they had and everything, put up the food, prepared and to feed us, to get us off less processed stuff, but also the spiritual preparations. So what's the Lord called us to do? I reviewed this a few months ago. In Luke 13, 9, we have been called to do business until I come. I said that backwards. Luke 19, 13, do business till I come. And so it is an imperative meaning that we are to carry on business in the Lord's work until he comes. We're not to go into hiding. So we can be prepared, but we still have to preach. The 12, they were to take the wallet, take the knapsack, take the weapon if necessary, but they were still called to go to preach. Jeremiah 29, 7, we're to seek the peace of the city where the Lord calls us to be carried away, where he plants us. We're to pray for the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. We're to pray for Lake Villa, for Antioch, for Round Lake Beach, wherever the Lord plants us, we're to pray and engage in our community, both spiritually and physically. Pray for the peace of our communities. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but the wealth of sinners is stored up for the righteous. There are those who are pushing for a social government where we own nothing and we'll be happy. We don't read about that in Scripture. God, you read about in the Old Testament, they had landmarks. And you were not to move the landmark of your neighbor. They were property rights. 
Um, we do find a little bit of that in the early church growth in the book of Acts, but it failed rather quickly. Personally, I want to do my best to prepare for my own family, for my children, my grandchildren, and those that I, the Lord allows me to minister to. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of sinners is stored up for the righteous. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, less people going to church today than just a few years ago, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much so, so as you see the day approaching. As we get closer to the Lord's coming, we should be engaged not only in our society, in our homes, but in our churches and supporting one another within our churches. We're not to waver in our faith, but we are to stand upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. For God is faithful to keep his promises to us. Therefore, we are to continually draw near to Christ with true hearts, having been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, having been washed by the water of his word. I would encourage us to be a people that more and more we grow accustomed to living in a state of preparedness, not knowing what tomorrow may bring, but knowing that Christ is there and will take us through whatever need we might have. So we thank you, Lord, for your word and for what you teach us. Our world is rapidly changing. And there are those, Lord, who are wanting to see the demise of this great country. And we know, Lord, prophetically that many of these things are fitting perfectly into the end-time prophecies of the last days. Whether, Lord, we are at that point where these things will be rapidly being fulfilled, that's only for you to know. But help us, Lord, to live in that state of preparedness that we, Lord, would learn to provide for ourselves, our families, our churches, commune in our churches, but also at the same time, Lord, not to become hermits, not to separate ourselves so much from the world, as I spoke on Sunday, that we would be salt and light in this world, that we would, Lord, do business until you come. That is our prayer this night, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. This coming Sunday, we'll continue our chronological journey through the Gospels, and we'll pick up the remainder of Matthew chapter 5, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount right now, and uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we have Matthew chapters 5 through 7, so we got a ways to go here, but we're going to finish out chapter 5 this coming Sunday. Lord willing, I pray that God would bless you and keep you that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.